So, a few things before I invite Louise up and interview her. Um, this interview, there will probably be some off the back of the interview that like, I, I want to read more of that story. I've kind of heard the overview of the story, but the Lord is doing something in me. I actually want to lean into that. Um, for those that, that find themselves thinking that at the end of this service, you can actually get the book. Um, so you can go to Amazon. It's called Hope is Coming, A True Story of Grief and Gratitude by Louise Blythe. So for those that want to, you can access the book and read the full story. Um, but before I interview Louise, I also want to say, when we share these stories, these stories are raw, they're intimate, they're vulnerable. And whenever you talk about grief and loss and finding God in the midst of that, um, that for many in the room is going to touch a nerve. When you tell stories of cancer diagnoses and grief and all of these things, this isn't just going to be conceptual. For many in the room, this is going to touch something here. And we want to name that from the get-go just to create safety. But more than that, we want to name the spirit of the living God is in this place, right? And the spirit of the living God is here to create a safe environment where we can open up our hearts with all the brokenness and all the raw stuff and say, God, would you come rushing in? And we're going to hear a story of, of someone that went through that process of like, darkness, brokenness, and the Spirit of God came rushing in. So it is a story of beauty, loss, anguish, redemption, all of it. Um, so we're in for a treat as we hear the story, but I want to pray that the Lord would just create that safe environment so his work can go deep within us. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We thank you that stories always have a domino effect. When we celebrate the story of your faithfulness in someone's life, it stirs faith that you could do similar things in our lives. And Lord, as we lean into, listen to a story, we pray that you would birth faith and hope that you are the God of redemption. You're here right now. You're doing your thing. You're weaving redemptive tapestries in our lives. And we say yes and amen to all of it. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Why don't we give a round of applause to Louise. Oh yeah, you're going to need a mic. Good point. Mics always help. There we go. So... Thank you so much for coming and joining us. This is the third of the three services you're going to be sharing the story. Um, so let, let's go back before 2015 is a, is a key moment in the story where your husband received the cancer diagnosis. But I want to go right back to like upbringing in terms of talks us through like was faith part of your childhood? Like did you grow up going to church or not? Tell us something of your, your upbringing. So I'm from Nottingham. That was for the one person <laughs> who is also from Nottingham, apart from my friends that I put with me. Um, and I had a lovely childhood and upbringing, yeah. but faith was not something at all that was part of my identity, my rhythm of life. I used to go to brownies, so I sometimes used to go to church. But for me, church was a place where I had to stand up and sit down and say lots of words that I didn't understand. It wasn't a place that I felt was home. It wasn't somewhere that I identified with going to on any level. Yeah. So let's fast forward then to, to 2014, 2015, because life felt pretty good at that point, right? Just tell us almost the landscape of what life felt like at that moment. Yeah, so I, I mean, I said in the services this morning that I felt that I'd almost won at life, which is quite a bold statement to make when you're in your early 30s. And 
I really genuinely felt like life couldn't have been going much better for me because I'd got a good job. Yeah. I'd started at that job, which was also a chocolate factory. So Come I on. got free chocolate. <laughs> and I mean a lot of free <laughs> chocolate. I had met George there, who would become my husband. And George and I grew up together in our 20s. You know, we thought we were grown up when we met, but really we were kids. And we grew up together. We made a home together. We bought a home together. We got married. And then we had our first son in 2013. And then in 2015, we had our second little boy. And genuinely, there was a moment. We moved very shortly after. So I used to live down south. And we moved, we relocated back to my hometown. So I basically dragged him north. He was a southerner through and through. And I remember when I got back there and I got to the house that I still live in, that is my home, I remember thinking, whoa, you know, it doesn't, life is this is so great. Like, life doesn't get much better than this. And then it all went a little bit, so, a little so bit let's, different. So let's talk through then 2015, because it did feel like it came from left field. Suddenly, a, you know, George hadn't been well, but suddenly then a diagnosis rocked your entire world. Yeah, so George had been unwell for a few months. And I think it's really important to say that and name that, because he had lots of symptoms that he knew were things that weren't quite right with his body, um, but couldn't get on top of what was wrong. And so my big call out on that is if there's something that's not right in your body, be persistent yeah. and just keep naming it and keep talking to the doctor about it. And even if the doctor doesn't take you seriously, yeah. which is me not at all saying anything negative over doctors because it's incredibly difficult to be a GP. Um, but he knew that there was something wrong and he was persistent and very sadly six months later from the very first doctor's appointment that he'd had he was diagnosed with advanced bowel cancer which was really bad it had spread to his liver um he'd been told at every stage you definitely don't have cancer you're far too young to have bowel cancer um and in fact, actually, it's the second biggest cancer killer in the UK, bowel cancer. So I'm aware that there will be people this, this afternoon that have been, been touched by that as a disease. But I've said again, you know, already today that it was in that moment when George received that diagnosis that I suppose the way in which our existence had been going until that point utterly altered and changed because we were given life-altering news and it was incredibly life-altering for George, for myself, for our children, for every single person he was close to, as it was utterly devastating. So at that point, you've got two really young kids. You're on maternity leave. So you're in a moment of exhaustion, vulnerability, life's pretty like chaotic anyway. And then this news comes. Um, like, what was going on spiritually at that point? Because I, I said this morning, Jesus, perhaps the best known of his parables is the power of the sower, where the gospel is being sown and Jesus mentions there's four types of soil. And a lot of soils aren't really receptive to God, but the most receptive soil tends to be the soil um, that is receptive because of crises. And crises come in our lives and it could be something like a diagnosis, loss of work, something when life doesn't like make sense, there's an openness this kind of like shaking did create like a, a moment of openness out of sheer desperation. Just talk us through like that desperation in terms of looking upwards or outwards. So the moment of desperation that was created came slightly later. So it came after George's diagnosis because I think it was really important to say that we, we, we had the diagnosis 
I mean, I was on the floor for about three days, like genuinely, I remember just being in my pajamas and crying and not even leaving the house. And then literally giving myself a really good talking to and saying saying to myself I have to I have to keep going and so at that point the things that were sort of I suppose speaking hope into our lives were the fact that we had great doctors we had a good treatment plan and we sort of set our hearts to to that and that is what we put our hope and our trust in and I'm absolutely not standing here this afternoon saying we shouldn't put our hope in medical care I absolutely put my hope and faith in medical care at times but it was then only a few short months later, so it was about nine to ten months later, that we essentially reached the end of the line with George's treatment plan. So we sat in another room that was just a really hideous moment where we got handed a box of tissues and told, you know, there is nothing else we can do. There's no more treatment we can give you. You know, we can give you th- things that may help you, but they're not going to extend your life. And it was at that moment that we then, I suppose, we were in a place where we couldn't pick ourselves up well I certainly couldn't and really began to question okay so what what is there out here that can help me and so many people were sort of saying to me oh this is awful this is so desperate this is really really incredibly horrendous and I remember thinking there has to be a way like there has to be something that can that can help us And I'd always been wired, I think, to be quite a positive, optimistic individual. So I knew from my corporate background that I was a a positive person in some of the StrengthsFinders um, testing that I'd done. But, you know, however positive you are, when you're told that your husband is going to die and you've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and you're thinking, oh, beep, you know, it doesn't really get you out of that hole. But I think what it did was it created this openness in me to genuinely be ready to say yes and be ready to ask that I had never had before. And then there was a moment a few weeks later where out of sheer desperation, I went out, tried to find a church. And I told this story this morning, and I think that's probably more the impact of home alone on me than the Holy Spirit <laughs> because I, I remember that scene you know where Kevin goes and finds the finds the hope in the church and I was like that's going to be me so I'd gone to try and find a church near where I lived I mean it was quite late at night I don't know what I was thinking really obviously the churches were all closed and, I, and they weren't open and I was so angry because I remember thinking okay I mean, I didn't even know God at this point. But I was like, okay, God, if you are real, like I've, I've come to find you and you can't even show up. So I remember pulling my car over and, and screaming into the night sky, if you are real, now is the time to show me. Yeah. It's now or never. Yeah. And that was the beginning. Yeah. You mentioned in the other services, like that almost being like, a raw moment. Oh, yeah. The prayer was like rough around the edges. A few there was a lot of swearing. Fruity language, which yeah. I'm sure in that moment of prayer, God absolutely loves. Um, but one of the things that really struck me, you kind of said, and this is the power of testimony, you said that sometimes when you drive past or cycle past that lay-by with your kids, you just say, oh, that's the place where mummy basically cried out to God for help, yeah. right? Which is it's an amazing thing that your kids are drawn into the story. They're like, that's where mummy met Jesus or met God. So this prayer, ah, God, where are you? Um, what followed that prayer, I mean, you could read about it in the book, 
is like a wave of supernatural activity, like with some random prophetic words. Just talk us through the crazy ways that God began to answer the cry from that night. So my old self would have thought that the way in which that cry was going to be answered would have been literally, you know, a voice from heaven on high. Hello, Louise. You know, I am here. (laughs) And that definitely didn't happen. But in many ways, it actually did. So after having this outburst, and I openly would say it was an outburst, I went home and thought, oh, that was a bit strange. Um, And just tried to carry on like I was having a very normal day when I was very much not having a normal day and the beginning of a very supernatural synchronized series of events was a text message that I received from a friend who had been at a wedding and at this wedding someone had approached her who she didn't know and said to her I really strongly feel that there's someone in your life that you know who's really unwell and I really need to pray for you and for them and at that point in time my friend Um, had just found out how sick George was. She was really broken. She's a really close person to me that I've grown up knowing. And they had this moment in this wedding. they weren't a Christian, your friend. No, my friend is not a Christian. They had this moment in this wedding where they prayed for George. And then a few days later, and this is the part that just still blows my mind because so much of my story was so insanely, divinely synchronized. On the very day that I go out and scream to God is the day that I get this text about the fact that she's met this girl. But actually, she'd met this girl about five days previously, spoken to her mum about it, who'd spoken to my dad, who'd spoken to my mum, who'd (laughs) spoken back to her mum about it again. And then they'd gone, oh, yeah, no, maybe let's actually tell Louise. (laughs) We're making this decision for her. So let's actually just tell Louise. Just tell Louise. And they were maybe protecting you from some nutty Yeah, because they were thinking, who is this crazy yeah. loon who wants to pray for you and by yeah. the way she absolutely is not crazy loon she yeah. is now a really good friend this yeah. this this woman and it was that moment where we were connected and then we had this sort of like spiritual um synchronization between the two of us and I said again earlier today you know it's those moments when you think of someone and they ring you or you see something that you know your friend loves and then they text you about it and you're like oh that's so weird I was just thinking of you I had that with this individual who I had never met, who lived in London. So this this gradual sort of like synchronicity built around us, so much so that I then felt really safe when she said to me, and this was bold, she said, I really want to come to Nottingham and pray. She lived in London. I want to get the train and I want to come to Nottingham and I want to come to George's hospital room. I want to sit with you and pray. Can I come? Yeah. And I just said, yeah. (laughs) So she came and then, you know. Well, let's go there. That's what happened. So she gets on a train you'd never met. The first time you meet is essentially in a hospital room. George is dying. And I've heard you talk about this before. I mean, anyone could do this, right? She puts on some worship music. She brings some bread and wine, sort of celebrate communion and just prays with you. But just talk through what's going on in that moment because this is all pretty new to you, right? It was... Desperately uncomfortable for me and all so new. And I remember being in that hospital room and thinking, what have I done? George is going to absolutely kill me because this is really quite extra what's going on. (laughs) And it was interesting because he asked her to sit. He asked her to move so she came and sat beside him. Until that moment, he hadn't allowed 
anyone to be close to him. Yeah. I think for him, there was a lot of shame around his bodily functions. His body yeah. was breaking because he was dying. And he felt really strongly that he didn't want other people that he didn't know to, to witness that. And he was really particular about who he would have next to him. And I mean, physically, kind yeah, of at the distance close. and proximity that we are now. Yeah. But he invited her to sit next to him. So I thought, okay... Maybe we're all right with this. And then she began to pray. And I remember feeling myself a little bit like when you're on a fairground run and you're like, oh. <laughs> oh. And in my head, I was like, what are you doing, Louise? Don't let go. Do not let go. Like, you have to be the person in charge. Like, you can't. Like, George can let go. You can't. Yeah. But I could sense what I now know is the Holy Spirit beginning to move in this hospital room. And we walked out and... I said to her, like, what, what did you just do in there? That was insane. Like, I felt like I was, like, on the clouds. And she said, oh, I just, I just prayed. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I need to know how to do that. Like, <laughs> like, can you teach me? And she was like, well, you just, you, you, there's no, I, can't, I don't need to teach you. Yeah. You just talk to God, you know, just have a chat with him. Yeah. So that night I went home and was like, okay, I'm, I'm good at talking. I can, <laughs> I'll chat. But it's funny because even the way in which I approached my very first prayer was I tried to be very, maybe, I suppose, what I deemed to be holy, which was I tried to get down on my knees and put my hands together because that's what... And that was... And I honestly, then I remember being in my bathroom and thinking, this is just all wrong. Like, what are you doing? And I remember I went and got in bed and I got my phone and I was like, right, I am going to write... If this guy exists, I am going to write him a letter and I'm going to tell him everything I'm thinking, everything I'm feeling, yeah. like we're going to lay it down. So I spent most of that evening writing this prayer, got about an hour sleep, woke up to a message from this girl that said, God laid, has laid a really powerful word for, for you on my heart. Is it okay if I send it? And she basically sent an answer to my prayer, right? <laughs> on text. So then I go into the hospital that morning and I get more texts from her as I'm going in that were like so supernaturally in sync. And then I walked into George's hospital room and I opened the door and he, up until this point, up until this point, and I don't speak to this because I don't like to speak to it, but it had been horrendous. Like he had been so poorly in ways I don't want to give the enemy justice to even give airtime to. And... He had not found peace at all. He was in real discomfort. And I walked in the room and he was in his bed and he had his arms out like this and he just said, it's all gone. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what drugs have they given him? He's really, like genuinely, That I did it at that yeah. point even, I wasn't like, he's had an encounter with Jesus. <laughs> I was like straight to the nurse's yeah. station like give me his chart what has he had and they were like he's not had anything Louise he's yeah. had nothing and I remember they said to me he has found peace and it was a nurse who said it to me I mean I don't know and I maybe never will know if that nurse had a faith yeah and I remember going back into George's room and then at that moment dropping down on my knees and being like oh my gosh like this is <laughs> real yeah. all of this supernatural existence is real god is yeah. real he is here like george has found some sort of hotline connection yeah oh my word and it was just insane wow 
You mentioned that there was like a five-day window like this where almost like heaven and earth it become a very thin place and such was the thickness of God's presence in the room. Even nurses were basically in their break times coming just to sit in that room because there was something so deep going on. Just just talk us, because I mean, that's, that's a holy moment, isn't it? In a holy space. Just talk us through what that felt like because there was this peace that was passing all understanding, this light in the midst of the darkness. But you're also aware your husband's dying. There's a three-year-old and one-year-old. Their life is being turned upside down. Just talk us through that kind of those five days. It was really, really hard, Mm. but it was also really, really special and beautiful. And it was genuinely one of the most precious moments that I will take with me to my grave because I genuinely saw heaven break into that room and so many other people felt it. And I think what was so interesting was at the time I literally had gone from sort of, I suppose, zero to hero in my faith. So, and I had no... I had no preconceived ideas of yeah. how I thought God should work, yeah. how I thought the Holy Spirit should move, what I thought I should be doing. And it's so beautiful. And obviously I've spent a lot of time, you know, reliving the story to, to be able to tell the story as a book. When I relived a lot of the moments, two to three years later when I wrote the book, I realized how many of the moments were so holy and prophetic. I remember there being this moment where... Um, I haven't shared this before where I was sat at the end of George's bed and actually we haven't we haven't touched upon the fact that Johnny who's Pete's cousin yeah. was also in the hospital room so as a as a as a side note I'd after having prayed once was like I need a professional person to pray <laughs> and through the kind of crazy connectivity of Christian circles, got connected to Johnny, Pete's cousin, who literally just arrived in Nottingham yeah. to plant my church, Trinity Church. And he, so he's in this, he's in this scene and we're around George's bed and I was sat at his feet and I remember my tears like on his feet and, and and like almost like washing his feet with his, with my tears in this hospital room. And I remember when we came out, Johnny saying to me, do you realize like the holy symbolism around what you've just done? Yeah. And I was like... Johnny, what are you talking about? <laughs> Seriously. I, yeah. No, of course I don't know what you're talking about. I've not even read the Bible. Yeah. And there were so many of these moments that happened that, as I said, you know, years later, I'm still unraveling, like, the significance of wow. them. But equally, it was deeply, deeply sad. And there was this, I remember feeling all the time, and in fact, there's even a prayer that I, I write that's, that's in the book that I kind of say, like, you know, God, I want you to be with me and it's so exciting and it's so insanely beautiful, this incredible emotional attachment that I'm now feeling to you. But I don't know what to do because I'm really sad and my husband's dying and I, and I feel like I shouldn't be feeling these two strong yeah. emotions simultaneously because it was totally alien to be genuinely losing the love of my life up until that point. Yeah. But gaining this you know this love that was far greater than anything I'd ever experienced wow. before wow. and just was moving in ways that were just way beyond my expectation wow we've only met today but um 
I was aware of your story, partly on the phone with my cousin Johnny, like however many years ago, as he was basically processing, just planted a church in Nottingham. Suddenly now he's at George's bedside, like ministering to someone in their last moments. And I remember chatting to Johnny because it was stirring deep things in him and he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he grew up with a fear of death. And I think it was an incredibly healing moment for him in that he said, I've just seen someone die the most beautiful death, where the presence of God was so thick in the room in those last five days, like George just encountering wave after wave of the love of the Father and the hope and the peace. It's like, I've, I've witnessed something that I don't need to be afraid of anymore because it was the most beautiful thing. And you, you mentioned that even in those last five days, as, as George was basically encountering Jesus, became aware of where he was going, yeah. started quoting scripture maybe that he hadn't read before, yeah. but suddenly God was like speaking to him to share something of that. Yeah, I mean, he was, there, was all, there were all sorts of things that happened. There really, really were. And in many ways, those five days felt like five years when we were yeah. living them. Um, there was a day when I came in and George was talking to me about perfect love. And I, and I remember thinking, well, like, what are you talking about now? <laughs> and it was only eight months later that yeah. I'd got to the, the yeah. scripture all about perfect, perfect love. love. And I remember I was literally gripped thinking, this is exactly what he said to me when wow. he was dying. And it was just, it wasn't of this world. And What's been so interesting and I found so fascinating about my story because it obviously is really, really sad because, yeah. you know, we didn't get the, the ending that in earthly realms we deem to be the success wanted, story yeah. because he wasn't raised and completely yeah. healed. He did die. And for me, it's been really powerful because I've come into this world of Christianity where our superhero at the middle of this whole thing, yeah. you know, also dies. Yeah. But yet, you know, always remark upon the fact that we are all still so scared of dying. Yeah. And I know you spoke about, you know, Johnny's fear, and I would be lying if I sat here and said, you know, well, I've never been scared of, yeah. of dying. But until, until that moment where I saw George die, I was always so yeah. frightened. But after having witnessed that, I now genuinely think there is nothing for us to be afraid of. Like, if yeah. we truly believe, you know, what is in the scripture, like, this is just the waiting room, you know? Yes, absolutely. And it's so easy to forget that and hold on to earthly ways of thinking and being. And when you are in a moment where everything earthly is being taken from you, all you can stand on is the spirit. Yeah, yeah, there's something incredible about that, the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. In the scriptures, it, it says that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Yeah. Because the resurrection and death isn't the end of our story. It's just a door into everlasting life. And I think there's something incredible about witnessing your husband almost encounter peace and then die with like a knowledge of I'm going somewhere better. So a, a beautiful ending. But I, I do want to talk about, you know, what life looked like after that. Because suddenly, you know, you mentioned earlier that like when you get a diagnosis like this, the grieving process begins at the diagnosis, not necessarily at the death. Yeah. So you're already grieving, but now George has passed. Um, your faith is coming alive, but you're still processing inner turmoil. Just talk us through that 
that kind of season of like the agony of it all, but also discovering the person of Jesus? It was really, really challenging. And when I think back to that time, it honestly makes me feel more sad than actually thinking about George's death. Yeah. Because it was so hard and there was no there was no kind of manual in terms of what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to cope. And in many ways, I was a social pariah, which was really difficult because I'd gone from, you know, being married to, okay, I'm not necessarily single, even though maybe I am. And I'm not in this world of all the families because they're all happy families together and I don't feel like that anymore. And I felt really deeply deeply lonely for quite some time because I felt that all of my social standing had been stripped from me and the only place repeatedly that was a place where I just felt like I could go and be everything I wanted to be was the very beginnings of of Trinity and at this stage Trinity Trinity's younger than this church Trinity Mm. didn't even have um, the renovations completed in their building So I used to go to Johnny and Amy's house where they used to do church for the kids. And my kids used to go in the front room and I used to sit in the back room and weep. And (laughs) random people, and some of them are still friends, but some of them now, genuinely, I don't know who they are, used to come and pray with me. And it was like that was what filled me up then for the week ahead. And it was a really, really hard time. And... The only thing that I would say about that time was I I don't think, again, I had any of this shame. And I'm going to say that really strongly because I think there's a lot of shame sometimes in Christianity about the fact that you believe in Jesus. And I loved earlier that we mm. sang, you know, like we're not afraid of the gospel yeah. because I think so often we hold back. Genuinely, I was telling everyone I met about <laughs> Jesus, everyone I met, and I also didn't feel like there was this way in which I needed to grieve or show up in a Christian way yeah. because I didn't have, I didn't have that as a, as a kind of, as any parameters around yeah. me. But the part that was really interesting, and again, I, I deliberately want to touch on this, is that genuinely I didn't know who Jesus was. Yeah. I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit And I knew then that that was God because it was so powerful. It couldn't be anything else. But I genuinely still hadn't like made the connection. (laughs) And it was quite some time. And I remember genuinely saying at my church one day, I look back and think, what was I doing? (laughs) I genuinely said like, why are you all just so obsessed with Jesus? I just (laughs) don't get it. Yeah. And so I, and like genuinely, it has been like a real, it's been, it's been a long walk to get to where I am now and it's absolutely not done like I still feel like I'm a child in my Christianity but it's been I've just had to let God into every single part and then when there's been parts that I can't do I've had to pray and be like I can't do this I don't know about this like give me some people that do yeah you know I've heard you say that you know, George was your world. Yeah. That essentially your your life was centred around, like, family, George. Um, and in the shaking, that that changed, right? 
Um, and the way you are articulating it reminded me that there's, there's lots of like metaphors or language in the scriptures about God, God as father, but one of them is God as husband yeah. to, to Israel. And as you were talking earlier, it was like, oh, as your faith was slowly forming, it was like almost Jesus saying, no, your life now is every bit is going to be centered around me. And as that was happening, you know, in terms of reading scripture, praying, finding yourself in family, suddenly your life found a new center, a new foundation beneath it. It did, but that was so hard. And actually the thing that was so interesting is actually being with God was one of the safest places for me to be. And so I think in many ways it was easy for me to be completely vulnerable with him because I genuinely had nothing left. Yeah. And I also didn't have any preconceived ideas about what I could give to him yeah. or maybe what I had to, you know, hide away because <laughs> that wasn't really very Christian of me to think yeah. that. So honestly, like, if you read some of my prayers, like, they are out there. Yeah. You know? like raw. In, uh, Really raw and at times full of temptation and... Yeah desire and you know this like those that first year of being a young widow was awful you know it was suddenly I'd gone from having a husband to not having a husband and there's a lot that comes with that that I had to process with God and it was really really intimately difficult for me Yeah. yeah Two, two final questions as we land the first one is really about the difference faith has made in your life So if we go back to 2014, 2015, where outwardly, on terms of world's appearance, it's like, Louise is living the dream. She's smashing life. Then the language you used was winning. Mm. Um, Through to where you are now, where you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and God has done the most beautiful work of, like, weaving a redemptive tapestry, and there's still lots more to come. But, like, what difference has faith in Jesus made to your life? Faith has made the difference because I genuinely don't know what I would have had left to stand on if I didn't have Jesus, his word, and my faith. And in those early days, it was the only thing that got me through. And that might sound like a really dramatic thing to say, but I always felt, I remember always feeling so understood when I read the Psalms in particular, yeah. I used to read the Psalms every night before bed and I used to just cry my heart out yeah. because I used to just feel so seen mm. by what the psalmist said mm. and this battle of just, you know, I love you, but why are you making me do this? And why why me? And I'm not brave enough and I don't feel strong enough, but then some days feeling really like, oh, I can take on the world and other days I just can't do this. And that, all of those emotions are so beautifully articulated in the Psalms. And they were really something that carried me. But it was just... (sighs) Ultimately, Jesus has has just been so redemptive. I mean, I am so lucky to sit here and say that I have got the most amazing husband because I've married Mm. again, which Mm. I never in a thousand years thought would be my Mm. story, that I would meet and fall in love and my children would be being raised by a man who is just their dad, but not their dad biologically. And that is just, you know, there's been so many redemptive parts of the story, but 
even if it's really easy for me to sit here and say, oh, you know, well, I've got a new husband, so everything's yeah. okay. Because in earthly terms, yeah. so many people look at me and want to believe that, people yeah. who don't believe in Jesus. And I always say, in fact, my publisher even said to me, you know, we want you to write the second story because, you know, you fell in love again. And I was like, did you not read the first book? Like, <laughs> I was saved by Jesus, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I don't need to be saved by a man. Yeah. But genuinely, there was an element of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's true. Ah, so it's good. true. It's true. It's it true. is true. Like, I am thankful for my yeah. second husband, but I did not need him to save me. Yeah. 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 Amen. So, <laughs> yeah. I think he's watching online, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. Um, there is, next week's episode. Yeah, yeah, we'll do, we'll do part two in a year's time. There is something you said, like, just as a side point, like the Psalms are a gift when you're hurting. They're a gift for all of life, but one of the early church fathers used to say that scriptures are spoken to us, but the Psalms speak for us. So as we read the Psalms, it gives us some language to say, oh God, I'm angry at you and I'm hurting. I love that actually that was a gift for you in that season. Final question then, because it's easy to hear a story like this and, 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 and sort of like make some connections, but think, Do you know what? My story isn't like, I haven't been through that. Or it's, I've, I've experienced some disappointments, but like that's next level. The, the reality is all of us will experience trauma. All of us will experience disappointments. All of us will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. People around us will pass away. You know, we face our own death. So it's like none of us can sit back and think, I can't connect. And in a moment like this over the last five years where we've collectively walked through trauma in COVID and post-COVID and cost of living crisis and now social commentators talk about a moment of perma-crisis, crisis after crisis after crisis. At some level, we're all traumatised. And we know we're all broken, but I think we're living in a moment where we're all more aware of our brokenness and our fragility. And you just don't meet people now trying to present, I've got it all together, because no one believes it's possible. So some of us can hear this story and it just taps into like, oh God, I'm hurting. And like despair, I feel like maybe I'm like drowning a bit in despair and I want to find hope. You know, what would you say to someone who feels like they're walking through that dark valley right now? I would say two things. So firstly, just look to today. And the scripture that I stood on in the very beginning, just after George's death, was don't look to tomorrow because tomorrow has enough cares yeah. for itself. You know, look, look to today. And it is, you know, the Lord's prayer. Give me today my daily bread and there's real power and it's, it's so interesting because in this you know like you say the the world we live in now there are some really spiritually I suppose there's some there's some areas where people are very spiritually open yeah. and one thing that people will talk about is the moment and the now and Jesus Jesus came up with that yeah. and I like to remind people of that <laughs> but he really did you know yeah. it is like give us today this daily bread it's in his prayer and that yeah. is the power of now yeah. it wasn't Eckhart Tolle that came up with it <laughs> it was Jesus yeah. then the second thing is just just be with him and that can be so hard when you're so angry and hurt and I 
I deliberately say that to a group of people who are in church on Sunday. So the kind of thinking from me is you've probably already got some sort of faith or maybe some questions. And often what I find is it's people who have faith who say to me, you know, I lost my faith when this awful thing happened. And that is exactly what the enemy wants to have happen. Like that, that is not God. And actually just... If you are so angry at him, you can't speak to him. And let me tell you, I have been in that place. Just still go and sit in the same room as him. Like, listen to some worship music. Read some scripture over yourself. Because it's so easy otherwise to just think that God has left you. Because he doesn't show himself in the ways that we want him to. I mean, if he did, it would be so much easier, right, to be a Christian. But he doesn't. He never will. That's not the way he works. So you just have to be with him yeah and then he will reveal himself but it will be in time yeah yeah amen be with him he is god emmanuel god god with us